Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Hema Lomax and Lisa Fine. We're sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights and the Compliance Podcast Network. When we ask the GWIC community for topic requests, we are inundated about one in particular. That's how to get on boards of directors. It's also the topic that was recently announced for the Women's Brunch at Compliance Week. And I am lucky enough to moderate that with Ellen Hunt, Kim Yapchai, and Cindy Mooring. But today, we have a great guest to talk about this, Bets Lillo. She is an engineer with an MBA, and she has become a board director and advisor to technology and communications companies following a corporate executive career in for Fortune 100 companies. So with that, thank you, Beth, so much for joining me. And can you start by talking about where compliance had fit into your career path? Lisa, thank you. I'm delighted to join you and all of the fans of the Great Women in Compliance podcast. So compliance really was the uh, last stop on a corporate career that took me around to multiple different functions, from sales to technology to finance to operations and M&A. And one of the things I think that speaks to about compliance is that the work is typically very broad-based, and it's mostly about understanding people, process, and technology. And having the chance to see that from multiple different points of view was really significant to me as I moved into a compliance role. Okay. And did you always want to be on corporate boards? No. Actually, it wasn't something that had occurred to me earlier in my career. The last two companies that I worked for, Abbott Labs and Ab, did not allow their officers and executives at the time to serve on corporate boards. I worked for AT&T in the early to mid-2000s, and I served on a number of boards of AT&T legal entities in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. That was a great experience because it was a time of huge change in the telecommunications industry. And I really saw how serving on a board of directors forced me to think with a lot of attention to detail about what information was needed to make robust assessments of the effectiveness of the management teams in the various countries where we were operating. It's not unlike a compliance role, really. It's taking an abstract of the information that people in the day-to-day jobs are using to do their work, and it's looking for signals, either that something needs to be assessed or something needs to be addressed. When do you think you decided that was a goal for you? And once you thought about that, how did you put together those different components of your work? And what else did you do to prepare yourself for board positions or getting a board position? So I'll say overall, Lisa, just in fairness to your listeners who may be extraordinarily planful about their careers, my career took me in a lot of different directions. And that was as much about being able to recognize great opportunities when they came along as it was thinking two steps out about each different job that was that came my way. When it came to looking at boards of directors, it was actually a friend of mine who'd been a CEO of a company as well as served on multiple both public and private company boards who took a look at the background that I had and said, Bets, today companies are really facing challenges, particularly in risk management, that are very multifunctional. 
and you've got a fabulous background to be able to help those companies understand some of those risks and opportunities from a perspective that really crosses a lot of functions. So it really was a nudge from somebody else to consider board service that allowed me to reflect on the work that I'd done with AT&T in the mid-2000s and to um, look at that as a possible next step. I think a lot of people, a lot of our listeners too, fell into compliance accidentally when they were in legal teams. It's a little different from you as you had started in engineering, finance, and other backgrounds. But I've noticed that people, once they have gotten into this field, I think it may have changed a little bit with some of the less less senior, one way of putting it, women joining the field today. But people, once they get involved in this, I do think they start thinking about being on boards. It comes to mind. Absolutely. It's a very advisory role. The thing about, from my perspective on compliance, and you're right, I came at it from a transactional experience base. So I picked up my compliance leadership role at the same time that I was overseeing $15 billion a year in direct and indirect purchasing transactions for AbbVie. And it was an interesting experience of having accountability for something that I didn't have direct line of sight responsibility to manage. That I think there's a real common thread between overseeing compliance responsibilities and serving on a board for that very reason. That makes a lot of sense. And you talked, although you've talked about AT&T and how that brought you into the mindset of board, but also your experience and talking about Abbott Labs and Ab. ABV, which I always have a little trouble saying, prepare you for serving either on boards or for the experience. I thought it was really interesting when we spoke that you were talking a bit about how it was spun off and company culture and other things. So, you know, how did you leverage that experience or utilize it into what you wanted to do going forward, either with boards or some of your advisory roles now? Most of my work with Abbott Labs was in the M&A space. And again, like both compliance and serving on boards, that's an area of responsibility where people have to extract meaningful information out of a lot of noise and figure out when there's a signal that you should act, when there's a signal you should get more information, et cetera. When AbbVie was spun off, AbbVie was an $18 billion spin out of Abbott Labs that launched as a public company in January of 2013. And we had a three-year period in which we had to separate and extract the two businesses from one another in over 170 countries around the world. Now, AbbVie is a company now that's got some additional aspects to its business, including the aesthetics business that it acquired when it bought Allergan. But at the time, the primary patients that AbbVie served were people who had chronic medical conditions in none of the countries where we operated. Could we afford any disruption to operations, to regulatory compliance, to the relationships that, frankly, we had built as a part of Abbott? So spinning that out was an enterprise transformation that I led from a people process and technology perspective. And that really prepared me well to move into a role that included compliance oversight as well as both finance and technology operations. Uh, that man, yeah, that must have been really interesting just to see how that plays out. As you were speaking, I was thinking about I, I work in education and education technology, and one of the things that I, we talk about sometimes is I remember that 
were not curing cancer or take care. And I remember speaking to one of my friends once. She said, the problem when I talk about this with my husband is he is actually, in fact, trying to cure cancer. So I think about that a little as you're speaking of the urgency of keeping things flowing just for the health and safety of people and how that is a higher standard in, in some ways because it is actually life or death. We used to say AbbVie, and particularly with respect to purchasing compliance oversight, that there's a patient at the end of every transaction. And so I think one of the advantages that that gives people who are working in a life science environment is that they really have a sense of mission-critical nature to their work that helps people understand the value of compliance. And it's not just practical matters of complying with the laws and regulations. It's really also about the reputation responsibility that everybody has when they work in an environment where patients' lives are at stake. But I'll just say, having worked in telecommunication and technology, I was in AT&T overseeing network operations and customer service outside the U.S. during 9-11 and the collapse of WorldCom. And that caused tremendous disruption in the infrastructure on which all of us rely around the world. So whether it was our big commercial customers like a General Motors or a Kimberly-Clark or whether it was small regional businesses, the significance of those disruptions, both the um, WorldCom fraud, which caused business infrastructures to go belly up and fail unexpectedly, or the follow-on to 9-11, which created significant additional load on the networks. Both of those things really drove unexpected changes in the environment in which we work. And frankly, the accountability that each of us felt as part of keeping the telephone network live was that there are businesses of all kinds out there, education businesses, businesses for companies who are curing cancer. And I think it was a great reminder that we're just all part of an ecosystem in which every piece has to work as it's designed. Absolutely. And also having said that from the education standpoint, we, I always think about our mission in a very mission-driven way, too, is that we are some ways of people in the world, their only ability to get to their education and to get to what they want and need. And so I feel the urgency is just sometimes when I want to tell people they can go home at night, it won't be an emergency before tomorrow. It's not. And it's also interesting in the difference between having to be regulated to survive every day, your mistakes or others. But with that said... I think it is a really interesting way to think about it, especially on 9-11 when that was. I remember it. I was in D.C. and being able to call my parents was a huge thing. Just even well, and I think actually you look at who's making headlines today, Lisa, and the reality is that the companies that are making headlines for ethics and compliance issues are in the education space. And you look at the Harvard and Penn State situations, and the reality is that doing the right thing is as important to do if you're in a strategic environment like education where you're building the next generation of leaders as it is if you're doing the transactionally important things of keeping phone lines up or keeping medicines going to patients. Yeah, it is all critically important. It just is interesting to see how different companies and different types of organizations and different worlds, for lack of another word, handle it. With that, how let's talk a little bit about how do you think an ethics and compliance professional can add value to boards? 
I'm really glad you asked the question that way, Lisa, because ultimately most people think about why they want to be on a board. And frankly, no board should onboard an additional director because he or she wants to be on a board, right? The reason that a board would select a candidate is because he or she brings extraordinary value. So I think one of the things that really works in favor of compliance professionals being great board candidates is that they typically have a very broad base of understanding how businesses work and what's important to keep a business operational. And that's that overarching sense of understanding the different components of business activity is something that happens in every boardroom. A lot of people who are not yet serving on boards may not understand that individuals on a board of director have no individual authority. All of the work that boards of directors accomplish is accomplished because they're a collaborative group working together. And I think that's the other side of the coin. So the one thing I would suggest to compliance professionals as they're working to craft their value statement for board service is to make sure that they can articulate how not only can they be effective when they've got a a real mandate, but they can be effective working in an influence and collaboration context. And I think if if compliance candidate can really highlight those two things and come in with whatever his or her secret sauce is for the particular board, I think that that will go a long way to helping highlight the value so that the company and the person can see if there's a match. Now, when we actually have uh, an ethics and compliance professional, they they find their way to be on a board and they're thinking about adding their value um, and what value they provide to that. What do you think the keys to success are when you get there? Because I, I would, ent- would guess it's a completely different game. It is a completely different game. One of the ways in which board service is particularly challenging for first-time board directors is understanding that managing the activities of the business is not their job. And I think from that standpoint, actually compliance professionals have a real advantage compared to people who've maybe been in PL roles or have been in technology roles because compliance professionals understand that they've got a responsibility to provide guidance and expert judgment, but that they're not going to be the ones with the broom and the shovel coming behind the parade. So I think that's one way in which a compliance professional can really easily elevate themselves for board service. I think keeping uh, my son ran cross country all the way through university. And I think the best piece of advice that he ever got from anybody was probably his high school coach who simply said, eyes up. And I think that's a really good piece of advice for somebody who's serving on a board. You hear the old nose in, fingers out. But I think really eyes up and looking around is one of the best ways for a compliance professional to bring value to a board because he or she will have a broad ability to understand the different considerations that are coming by the board and to help connect the dots on how those may be meaningful. I think the One thing that I would encourage compliance professionals to consider is whether qualification of some type 
might help them distinguish themselves from other folks out there looking for board roles. A lot of board roles tend to go to people who are former CEOs or former CFOs because those are roles that people on the board of directors understand very readily. So I encourage compliance professionals to also look at something like a board certification from a credible organization as they're preparing themselves for board service, not just because it's a qualification that can be recognized, but because they'll probably learn something along the way. I know I did. That's great advice, especially as I've I've been thinking about compliance and ethics and leadership generally, but also with boards and that you want to be able to be creative and help on business-related solutions. And I think that sometimes, and, and creative in that, you're, like you said, bringing something to the table. But I think we, we often do a fair amount of beg, borrow, and steal to try to get our objectives done. And while I don't think that's exactly how you want to handle a board, just your ability in some ways to recognize that and also try to help from that you know, ethical decision-making and risk preservation side, I, I think that being able to package that in a business-generating side maybe helps. What is your thought? That- well, I think... Most really good compliance people are expert listeners. They're expert at observing and they're expert at listening. They're also generally not afraid to ask questions when there's something that they need to understand better. So I think one of the real advantages that a compliance professional has is that he or she will be comfortable asking for more detail in an area where they don't have a level of experience or where they think the information's not clear. What I would suggest, though, is to also think about how other people may see you as a compliance professional, whether or not any of the ideas are true about you as an individual. Recognize that compliance professionals may be seen more to be rule followers and the collaborative element of working compliance that you and I know is critical to compliance success is likely not something that every CEO or CFO has observed in their own business experience. So I would say think about how to not only build those skills within uh, your own background as a compliance individual, but also how to make sure that's those kinds of words, things like collaboration and teamwork, are the way that other people would describe you. Many times people don't apply directly for a board of directors role like you would if you were um, applying for a job change. Many times before you even know that you're being considered for a board, either the recruiter or other members sitting on the board will ask people in your network about you. And so I think making sure that your network has, that you understand what your network would say about you, but also that the three words that your network would use to describe you are things that would bring value to the board and are consistent with the way that you would describe yourself. I would also think that you'd want to make sure you expand your network outside of the compliance, ethics and compliance world because a CFO, if two CFOs who've known each other are talking to one another and thinking about something and they say this this person I had this good experience with, I would think to keep that in mind as well is critical to make sure that you care about those relationships. Absolutely. CFOs and CEOs 
will be much more valuable to people of any kind of background who are considering board service because you, on a board you have five to 11 people and the turnover is very slow. So what's really important if you're interested in board service is to make sure that you're, first of all, make sure your company supports your interest and they don't feel like there would be any conflict with you serving on boards. If your company doesn't support you serving on for-profit corporate boards, then I'd encourage you to take a look at some of the really large nonprofits that are likely to have formal board structures like an American Red Cross or something where they have maybe a chapter-based organization. So you're likely to find um, something locally that's got enough formality that you could experience an audit committee, that you could experience a finance committee, that you could experience a risk committee that would be, while not the same as a corporate board, at least give you a little bit of understanding of how good boards should work. Um, but typically what ends up happening with these situations is that when you have very low turnover, it's unlikely that you're going to be asked directly, hey, Lisa, I think you'd be great. Is this something that you'd be interested in? It's more likely that somebody who's in the second tier of your own network sees an opportunity, and that's just network math. So if you've decided you want to be a part of a board, how do you go about doing that? And then also, I I guess one of the other things that I've been thinking about is a lot of times in ethics and compliance, we tend to have an excellent network within the field, but to expand outside of that, because for CEOs or CFOs or senior, there are people who may be more in the know and can be good references. No, you're absolutely right. Boards turn over very slowly. Five to 11 people, no more than one or two a year typically would turn over in a staggered board situation. Since there are not a lot of ethics and compliance professionals on boards today, the people that you want to be talking to are people who are currently sitting on boards, whether or not they're CEOs or CFOs, but CEOs and CFOs will also have exposure to boards. So they are hugely valuable to have in your network. The other thing to think about is positioning yourself so that everybody in the second uh, tier of your network would describe you as a board candidate. So make sure that, first of all, your company knows and approves of your interest in board service because word is going to get around. And then second of all, make sure that you're letting your network know that you're in a position to bring value to a board in this type of company with these two or three unique attributes. And if somebody can repeat that when they hear about potential opportunities, just the math of network says it's much more likely that word will get back to you and somebody will say, hey, I don't know anybody who's a good fit for this, but I know Lisa Fine and I bet she knows a ton of people who might be for these three or four reasons. That's really helpful. I would also think that it may help as well. Some people I know think they just want to be on the big corporate boards, but to build up to that too probably is helpful also. Um, yeah, absolutely. To consider smaller companies, privately held companies. Some people are not able to serve on corporate boards because of restrictions by their companies. As I mentioned, I was not at Abbott right. and AbbVie. And in that case, look for a large organ, large nonprofit organization, maybe chapter-based that has a full committee structure. So an audit committee, a finance committee, a nominating and governance committee, a compensation committee. That will give 
uh, people practice in operating in a board environment that while not the same as a corporate environment is good way to stair step into something that would have a corporate context. So I'm just going to change over for a second because you've made a big leap over the last few years. You're in Texas going from Chicago and we've talked about it, but my sister lives there, but also you're now an executive in residence and adjunct professor at TCU, Texas Christian University. And how did that fit in? And tell us a little (laughs) bit about that, because another thing people love hearing about is teaching. It's interesting. I am uh, really an accidental professor at TCU. When you were talking about working in the education industry, um, I will say, despite the fact that my parents met when they were university professors, I never imagined teaching. So I didn't voluntarily get into this, but I did move down to Texas during the pandemic for family reasons. And the opportunity at TCU to help that next generation of leaders go from classroom to boardroom has been really fabulous. It's the most strategic thing I've ever done because when you're working in a corporate setting, you can re- you've got a set of objectives and maybe you're looking five years out at what might change in the industry and what might change in the company. But when you're teaching a room full of 30 people, I teach both undergraduates and graduate students, when you're, but it's particularly cute with undergraduates, you're teaching a room full of 30 people. You have to package information in a really different way. You have to keep current because they are absolutely relentless. Nobody's going to let you get away with anything. The second thing you have to do is think about how every one of those students is going to be in a really different environment than every other one. And so you have to make sure that the information you're conveying is meaningful and understandable to people in a variety of contexts. I would argue that's not unlike serving on a board of directors where you're really, you're representing the owners of the company on some very strategic decisions that no one of them has the insight to do. So you're really working on their behalf. And I still think there are parallels to compliance because the, the, if we don't make sure that the company is living up to the expectations of the laws and regulations to which it's accountable, then ultimately, not only are we letting the people on the other end of the company's products or service down, but we're letting down everybody who's got a financial interest in that company, whether they're an employer, an executive, or an owner. Yeah. It's interesting. I come from a family, as you were talking about, your parents are professors. Pretty much almost everyone in my family is either a lawyer or a teacher, mostly in the public schools and elementary, not graduate level. So when I started and what I'm doing now, it felt like it made sense for me as a book person and any of that history. But and that has changed. um, That has changed where I see a bunch of different things in my thought process. But Can you share something from your teaching that has changed you or potentially made an impact? One of the things we have the opportunity when when we work in corporate environments, it's a pretty smart person can pick up what you need to do to be successful in a particular company and in a particular industry. This whole notion of sitting with a room full of 30 people who you know nothing about, who you may see for three hours a week over the course of the semester, you have so much less information about what's going on with any of them and what they need to understand about the subject in order to be successful. One of the, one of the 
best pieces of advice that I got in my first semester of teaching. I was dealing with a student who was turned in some of the best written work of anybody in the class, but would not participate, even though participation was 30% of the grade for that course. And it made no sense to me. I was asking a colleague and he said, why don't you just ask him? So I asked the student what I could do to make it easier for him to participate. And he said, those kids that sit in the front row are always raising their hands and they think so much faster than I do that by the time I'm ready to give an answer, you've already moved on to the next topic. And we came up with an approach where I'd call at him and he could get his, assemble his thoughts in a way that would be impactful to the class. But what that really did for me, and this just closing the loop on this notion that compliance professionals have bring a really unique skill set to whether it's the boardroom or the classroom. I think this ability to ask powerful questions, I've heard that asking is more important than telling. And the two places where I've seen that to be most true are the classroom and the boardroom. And I think that compliance leaders are well suited to ask those powerful questions and then to listen very thoughtfully to the answers and to help build that collaboration around the board table so that wherever that line of questioning is taking them, they can assemble the strength and courage to go forward. I think that's a great point and also a great point to close on because oftentimes I'll say when we're asking questions, how do you ask the questions correctly so you get an answer, but how are you listening to find out what somebody's actually saying and not saying and I think that is a really interesting parallel think, thinking for me about boards versus students versus investigation versus just being a, trying to be a good professional and collaborator in your businesses as a whole. So with that, Bets, thank you so much for being here with me today and, and catching up and for joining the Great Women in Compliance podcast. And I hope everybody has a great day. And thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.